we'll start with a blessing over Torah study. And I'll light this candle just for effect. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Kedishanu B'mitzvotav V'tzivanu La'asok B'divrei Torah. Amen. So I'm going to skip introductions to the Zohar tonight um, because I introduced it last week. I think you guys are familiar with it. Adam, you're familiar with it. Gary, you're definitely familiar with it. So we're just going to jump right into stu studying some text. Uh, I'd like to start with a very, very famous piece from the Zohar, which is in this new packet that I'm handing out, page 17. And this is, um, so every section of the Zohar corresponds to a Parsha from the Torah, Torah portion. And this corresponds to Parshat Mishpatim. And it's also known as uh, Sava de Mishpatim. Um, somebody want to read footnote number one about what Sava de Mishpatim is? Old man of Torah portion Mishpatim laws. Here begins a long narrative extending, uh, <clears throat> relating to an encounter between the companions Rabbi Yossi and Rabbi yeah, and an aged wandering donkey driver who turns out to be more than he seems. Okay, that's good. So, most a lot of the sections of the Zohar are, you know, they start off with this kind of there. This rabbi and that rabbi were walking around traveling, and then they ran into a donkey driver or a young child or you know somebody who seemed not so smart. You know, usually it's like the it's like the Shakespearean fool that they run into, and then this person ends up being the person who has the most wisdom of anybody. So this is a very famous one where this, this particular donkey driver, this old man, uh, and uh, so this what I've included here is just the first couple of pages of the narrative section where they run into him, and then I've skipped ahead to a specific commentary that this old man offers that is very, very famous. And it's about Torah study and about the meaning of Torah study and why we do it and what the experience uh, can be compared to. So uh, let's read this narrative here uh, where it says, One night Rabbi Chi and Rabbi Yossi, uh, and this is again on page 17, corresponding to part two of the Zohar, page 94b. Um, Let's go around this way, so since Adam read, I'll go next. Uh, one night, Rabbi Chia and Rabbi Yossi encountered each other at the Tower of Tyre. They lodged there, delighting in each other. Rabbi Yossi said, How happy I am to see the face of Shekhinah. For just now, the whole way, I was pestered by a certain old man, a donkey driver, who kept asking me the whole way, who is a serpent that flies in the air, moving in separation while an ant lies comfortably between its teeth? Beginning in unison, it ends in separation. Who is an eagle that nests in a tree that never was, its young plundered, though not by created creatures? Ascending they descend, descending they ascend, two who are one and one who is three. Who is a beautiful maiden without eyes, her body hidden and revealed? 
She emerges in the morning and is concealed by day, adorning herself with adornments that are not. So you could see why he was a little frustrated. He was a little, you could see why uh, <laughs> Rabbi Yossi was a little frustrated with this donkey driver who was you know, asking him these riddles uh, that were very, very confusing. Um, and so, first of all, he's very happy to see uh, he's very happy to see Rabbi Chia here, and so if you Rabbi Chia is the face of the Shekhinah. Rabbi Chia is the face of the Shekhinah. Right. So if you look at footnote number three, happy, how happy I am to see the face of Shekhinah. According to rabbinic tradition, whoever welcomes literally receives the face of the wise is considered as if he welcomes Shekhinah. And then if you go farther down, this is a quote from the Jerusalem Talmud. Rabbi Shmuel said, in the name of Rabbi Zeira, whoever receives the face of his teacher is considered, considered as if he receives the face of Shekhinah. Rabbi Yishmael taught, one who receives the face of his friend is considered as if he receives the face of Shekhinah. So it's like, like a new greeting, like, hey Adam. Nice to see the face of Shekhinah there. <laughs> the Zohar transformed the, transformed the rabbinic simile into an actual description of the righteous who are called the face of Shekhinah because Shekhinah is hidden within them. She is in concealment. They are revealed. Right? Because Shekhinah is the aspect of God that it is in everybody, in all of us. Right? So, so potentially anybody is the face of Shekhinah. And you know, it's silly because this old man was the face of Shekhinah too, right? And it wasn't just uh, Rabbi Chia who was the face of Shekhinah, it was the old man. But in a way, the, the Shekhinah in him was hidden because he was being too ob obtuse and confusing. And, um, but this, you know, Rabbi Yossi knows Rabbi Chia very well. They're good friends. So, you know, to him, he can see the Shekhinah in his face. You know, it reminds me of like when you say Namaste. You know, I, I honor the divine within you. You know, it's that kind of that kind of idea. You know, the divine is within each one of us. Um, so yeah, that's an interesting greeting. And you'll you'll note if you ever get a copy of this translation of the Zohar, he if if there's anything that you're like, hmm, that's kind of interesting. He has a note on it, pretty much. Um, and now uh, let's look at footnote number four. A donkey truck, a donkey driver is called a taya, Arab, an Arab caravanner, derived from the name of the Arabian tribe, Tayi. In the Zohar, Taya usually indicates one of various wandering donkey drivers encountered by the companions on the road. There are lots of these donkey drivers. Uh, and then if you look at the bottom paragraph of that footnote, the prophet Elijah returns to earth as a taya in Babylonian Talmud Brachot 6b. So it's not just uh, unique to the Zohar, but the, this idea, this this, trope, this literary trope of, of a, a donkey driver you know, being some holy being is, goes all the way back to the Talmud, um, where, it's, where it's Elijah the prophet who is the donkey driver. So, uh, so he's happy to see his friend, and then he's like, and. I'm happy to see you particularly because I just ran across this really crazy donkey driver who asked me these three really weird riddles. And so then, somebody want to continue? Uh, Barack, how about all of this he asked on the way? 
page 19. All this he asked on the way, and I was annoyed. <laughs> now I can relax. If we had been together, we would have engaged in words of Torah instead of other words of waste. Right, and then waste here they use, if you look down the footnote, waste tohu, which appears in Genesis 1-2, right? The earth was tohu vavohu. It's, the earth was chaos and void, waste and empty, with darkness, you know, with darkness over the face of the earth. Uh, over the abyss and the wind of God hovering over the face of the waters. So it, w it wasn't just words of waste, it was cha complete chaos, right? <laughs> Keep going. Rabbi Chia said, that old donkey driver, do you know anything about him? He replied, I know his words have no substance. <laughs> <laughs> For if he knew anything, he would have opened with Torah and the way would not have been empty. Rabbi Chia said, that donkey driver, is he here? For sometimes in those empty ones, you may discover bells of gold. Right, and now, if you looked at footnote number eight, sometimes in those empty ones, his apparently foolish riddles may conceal gems of wisdom. Mm. Mm -hmm. He replied, here he is, getting fodder ready for his donkey. They called him. And he came over to them, he said, now two are three, and three are like one. <laughs> He's like the Riddler, you know, from Batman. <laughs> Everything he says is like a little bit, or like Yoda, maybe, from Star Wars, right? <laughs> now two are like three. <laughs> <laughs> and three are like one. Well, but now it makes sense, right? Two are like three. The two of them become three, because the third guy comes along, and they all become one, because they're going to study together. OK, and then Rabbi Yossi says, <laughs> Rabbi Yossi says, Joe, do you want to continue? Rabbi Yossi said, didn't I tell you that all his words are empty in name? <laughs> he sat down before them and said, Rabbis, I have become a donkey driver, yet only a short time ago. Previously, I wasn't one, but I have a son, and I put him in school. I want him to engage in Torah. When I find one of the rabbis traveling on the road, I go to his donkey behind. Today, I thought I would hear new words of Torah but I haven't heard anything. <laughs> so now he's criticizing them. Right? Rabbi Yossi said, of all the war words I heard you say, I was astonished by only one. Either you said it out of foolishness or they were empty words. The old man said, and which one is that? He replied, a beautiful maiden. So let's turn back to the three riddles to figure which one he's talking about who is a beautiful maiden without eyes, her body hidden and revealed. She emerges in the morning and is concealed by day, adorning herself with adornments that are not. So that's the one that he, he kind of liked, but he said, well, maybe you're just, you, just you, you happened upon something true by mistake. Um, and so that is, the one that he was most interested in, or the only one that he was interested in. Is that the nine? What's that? Is that the nine? The beautiful maiden without eyes? Well, I decided that that's the one that we should look at. So <laughs> let's take a look. Um, that's on the next this is the moon page. Female? The moon is female. The, the moon represents Shekhinah. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> and and so in a so certain sense, it's moon true. Is like the face of Chia. <laughs> like the face of Chia, right? By <laughs> the transitive property, right? So page twenty-one, Gary, can you read? Um, so this is like uh, ten pages later. Let's okay. see how many pages. How many pages later? It's like we ended up on ninety-five A. So this is. This is about eight pages later. Mm -hmm. um, We're skipping this. Yes, yes. Because that's his, so right after that, he starts to you know, explain Torah passages, and he's explaining these riddles, and he gets to this, old, this woman, this maiden without eyes, eight pages later. But if you look at the top of the page, he's already, he's already won them over, because they say, it says, the companions came and fell down before him, and weeping, they said, if we had come into the world just to hear these words from your mouth, it is enough for us. So he's no longer crazy right? at, that, at this point. So now, he, once that he's established he's not crazy, he's going to give them the, the meatiest one. So, so Gary was... a moment. Right, they're like, I could die right now, I would be happy. I could die right now, I'd be happy. Uh, so The old man said... Yep. If another woman he takes for him, Exodus 21.10, Companions, not for this alone did I begin to speak, for an old man like me doesn't rattle or call with just a single word. Inhabitants of this world are so confused in their minds, they do not see the path of truth in Torah. Torah calls to them every day, cooing, yet they do not want to turn their heads. Although I said that a word of Torah emerges from her seed, is seen for a moment, then quickly hides away, certainly so, but when she reveals herself from her seed and quickly hides, she does so only for those who know her and recognize her. This may be compared to a beloved maiden, beautiful in form and appearance, concealed secretly in her palace. She has a single lover unknown to anyone except to her, concealedly. <laughs> Out of the love that he feels for her, this lover passes by her gate constantly, lifting his eyes to every side. Knowing that her lover is constantly circling her gate, what does she do? She opens a little window in that secret place where she is, reveals her face to her lover, and quickly withdraws, concealing herself. None of those near the lover sees or notices. Only the lover and his inner being and heart and soul follow her. He knows that out of love for him, she revealed herself for a moment to arouse him. So are we getting, everybody get the image? Right, so this is, he's talking about Torah. Right, he starts off by saying, people are so confused in this world, they don't understand. The importance of Torah, um, and then he says that every day Torah is calling to people, but they don't want to pay attention. And then he says a word of Torah kind of reveals itself and then hides, and then reveals and then hides. And that's the same thing he says about this maiden, right? This the images of this beautiful maiden in this tower, uh, in this in this palace. It's like a siren. Like a siren, yeah, like a siren calling to the, the sailor, right? Um, and 
but she's kind of locked away in this tower, but she doesn't, she calls to him, but he never, he never actually gets to her. You know, he, she might, he might see a little glimpse of her for a second, and then she's gone. Yeah, and he, but he, she wants to keep him interested, you know. She wants to keep him coming because he's her lover. Um, and so, you know, this is kind of the idea behind eroticism in general, right? Like that it's not, you know, if it's just all laid out there and there's no challenge and there's no clothing, you know, literally, then it's too, it, it's, it's not arousing, you know, it's not as, as, as it's, it's, exciting. It's, right? This reminds me so much of that um, section in, I believe, in, in Shir Hashirim about um, a woman who chases after searching for for this man that she and she can't find him and she asks everybody and uh, and, and and she says um, I, uh, at first she says I um, have not found my my heart's desire do you know where he is and, and then finally finally she finds him and says I found my heart's desire this is by the way what's on my ring <laughs> Which says Matsati Etche Ahava Nafshi. Right. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's that same kind of, and, and they draw a lot on 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 uh, Song of Songs in mm -hmm. in the Zohar. Right. It, much of it is much of the symbolism. Uh, some of the proof texts are taken from Song of Songs. Right. Because mm. the female character is the Shachinah, the male character is the Kadosh Baruch Hu, the, you know, Tiferet, the other aspect of God, which is in the Sfirot. Um, and yeah, all of all of life is seen as like this love affair between these two, but here um, it's comparing it not just to God and the imminent and the, the trans imminent and transcendent aspects of God, but it's also comparing it to a human being and Torah, right? And a Torah is not like <coughs> that physical thing in the in the you know it's not. It's it's truth, you know. It's Torah with a with a capital T, not Torah with a little t, right? It's the real truth and wisdom. Um, and the idea is that through study and reading these books and and thinking about the world and and um, you know thinking deeply about things, that you'll get glimpses of truth. You get like little tiny images but you never really get grasp the whole thing um it's like a tease it's like a tease right yeah she's like te it's like she's teasing you um and i i think there's an obvious metaphor to sensuality sexuality talking about a lover but i think in a bigger sense or in another sense it's talking about the love that a, a Jew or a human has for the truth of knowing God, that there's a natural grasping, a, a love there, an arousal, that, that arousal that comes when, so although it, it's, a, it's a metaphor about sex, I think it's really about the, the actual desire that 
human has for knowing God? I, and I, I, I would say yes, but I would also add to that as God is kind of absolute truth. You know, that, that I, don't, I don't always like to use the word God because mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not always specific enough. Um, but Torah. Torah, absolute truth, the mysteries of creation, you know. Um, Consciousness. Perhaps pure consciousness, you know, with one, one yeah. unity, the consciousness unity. of the universe, right? Getting glimpses of that, Returning but you never universe. actually attain it, right. right? And that's and that's kind of the beauty of it in this world and what keeps you going. Um, and it's also kind of frustrating, right? Like mm-hmm. you use the word tease, you know. Sure. <laughs> like, you know Heschel <laughs> talks about this, and um, um, I can't remember the the words he uses, but. Uh, that you know, we have insights and, and that really leads us to a place of awe and that carries us through the more, the, 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 more mundane the long or... mundane periods in between. <laughs> and we have flashes of something, yeah. I, yeah. I don't know the yeah. exact quote, but I, I, you remember. it sounds very Heschelian. Yeah. Um, and so just to get specific about the riddle that he had, right? If we look at footnote 97, the old man begins to expound one of his riddles, who is a beautiful maiden without eyes, her body hidden and revealed. She emerges in the morning and is concealed by day, adorning herself with adornments that are not. Apparently the description without eyes doesn't mean that she doesn't have eyes. It means that no one but her lover has set eyes upon her. Uh, None of those near the lover sees or notices. And I mean, there's also this. I mean, there's also this element of like, each one of us has our own truth that we are drawn to and seeking out, and nobody else can really see it but mm. us. You know, not each one of you know. I'm reminded, this is it's, it's not quite a perfect comparison, but there's a there's a there's a Kafka piece in the beginning of the book, The Trial, where it talks about a man is looking for justice. Uh, and he comes to this gate and he sits in front of this gate and there's a gatekeeper there and he ends up not going through and he's sitting there his whole life uh, until he's old and he says, you know, uh, how come this all these years I've been sitting in front of this gate and nobody else has come through and he says, well, this gate was just made for you <laughs> and this is just the first gate and there are all these other gates after it. Um, but you didn't go through, you just waited, right? So I feel, you know, in a way, like each one of us has our own beautiful maiden without eyes, you know, our own divine, uh, our own truth, our own div- divinity that we connect to that other people can't really see. Um, let's continue. Who was the last one to read? Was it Gary? So, Adam, so it is with a word of Torah. <clears throat> 22. So it is with the word of Torah. She reveals herself only to her lover. Torah knows that one who is wise of heart circles her gate every day. What does she do? She reveals her face to him from the palace and beckons him with a hint and swiftly withdraws to her place, hiding away. None of those there knows or notices. He alone does, and his inner being and heart and soul follow her. Thus, Torah reveals and conceals herself, approaching her lover lovingly to arouse love with him. 
All right, so the word hint is no coincidence. Right? Uh, I discussed the last time the four levels of Torah in, uh, interpretation, which is pshat, remez, drash, and sod, which is pshat is like the face value, simple meaning. Then remez is a hint, right, which is the same word they're using here. Drash is like a, 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 a metaphorical meaning, uh, deeper meaning. And then sod is like the deepest secret hidden meaning. Um, so here it's saying every once in a while there's a little hint. So when you're reading Torah, you see like, and you, you kind of your mind is stuck on something, that's a little hint from her, from your, from your, from your own personal wisdom, from your own personal deep Torah. It's, it's beckoning to you, and so you dive into it, and you, and you pursue it farther. Um, uh, I'll go next. Come and see. This is the way of Torah. At first, when she begins to reveal herself to a person, she beckons him momentarily with a hint. If he perceives, good. If not, she sends for him, calling him simple. <laughs> Dummy. Definitely <laughs> <Cardiff>. <laughs> Right. Well, that's the epshot, right? Yeah. Right, which is a, the simple meaning, right? If you, if you don't get the, if, you, if you're not getting the hints, if you're not catching the hints, you're just a simpleton, right? You're just, you're just living on this, this face value meaning, which I think is, you know, back, you know, if Hazel was here, she'd be asking about, like, applications to modern life, you know, and, and politics, and I would say that that's one of the major problems of, of many of uh, the the um, fundamentalist religions is that they they're simple, right? They just they dwell on that surface that, and they don't pay attention to the hints um, unless somebody tells them you know, to believe something. So uh, if he perceives them good, if not, she sends for him, calling him simple. Tell that simple one to come closer so I can talk with him. <laughs> As is written, whoever is simple, let him turn here. He who lacks understanding. As he approaches, she begins to speak with him from a, behind a curtain she has drawn, words suitable for him until he reflects little by little. This is drasha. Right? So that's the next level. Right? So pshat, you, just, is, you don't get it. You're just dwelling in the simple meaning. Remez is a hint, you know, there's like something there, hmm, I wonder what that is, like a little sparkly thing in it. And then drasha is, ah, okay, now there's, there's some interesting um, depth to this, uh, and you can dive even deeper into the, into the hidden meanings. Then she converses with him from behind a delicate sheet, words of riddle, and this is Haggadah. And so that doesn't, it doesn't quite fit there in the Pshat, Remez, Drash, and Sod model, but it's maybe part of the Drash part, right, is that you see this little hint, you get a little bit closer, you, you approach the hint, then it starts to speak to you a little bit, and you start to understand it a little bit more, and then even more you understand it, and Haggadah, Let's look at the footnote here. Let's first look at 98. Words suitable for him, drasha. Torah begins to unfold gradually through drasha. 
equivalent to Hebrew drasha and midrash, searching for meaning, interpretation, homiletical interpretation. Through hermeneutical techniques and imaginative midrash, the meaning of Torah expands. 99, from behind a delicate sheet, riddle Haggadah, now Torah reveals more of herself through Haggadah, telling homiletics, tales, but here referring specifically to allegorical interpretation of Torah, which was employed by medieval Jewish and Christian thinkers to convey philosophical truths. The marriage of Abraham and Sarah, for example, could represent the union of form and matter. What's, what's the um, purpose of um, the cur curtain and, the, and then the delicate sheet? Well, I think it's getting the, 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 that which is separating you from mm. ultimate truth is getting thinner and thinner and thinner. Um, and, and often the, the, the image of a sheet or a covering is used in, um, in the Zohar and many other places, right? That this idea of like, there's this veil or sheet or a curtain sometimes is the word that they use to translate it that's separating you from ultimate truth or from God. Do we want to keep going? keep reading. Once he has grown accustomed to her, she reveals herself to him face to face and tells him all her hidden secrets and all the hidden ways concealed in her heart since primordial days. I don't think he meant to rhyme, but maybe he did. <laughs> then he is a complete man, husband of Torah, master of the house, for all her secrets she has revealed to him, concealing nothing. She says to him, Did you see the hinting word with which I beckoned you at first? These are the secrets. This is what it is. Then he sees that one should not add to these words or diminish them. Then pshat of the verse, just like it is. One should not add or delete even a single letter. So human beings must be alert pursuing Torah to become her lover, as has been said. So, footnote 100. According to rabbinic tradition, Torah existed 2,000 years before the creation of the world. Um, and it says in rabbinic tradition also that God used Torah to create the world. That God looked into the Torah and created the world. It was like a blueprint for creation. Um, and so, uh, in this sense, Torah is much more similar to consciousness, you know, like pure consciousness uh, or wisdom. Uh, logos in the Christian idiom. Logos. Uh, number 101, a complete man, husband of Torah, fulfilled and wedded to his beloved source of wisdom. Now Torah is concealing nothing. Right, so she's like, right, you have the thick veil, you have the, she's inside the tower, and you have this thin, thick veil, a thin veil, and then nothing. Right? She, you're just right there with her. Uh, now Torah is concealing nothing, which may solve part of the old man's riddle, adorning herself with adornments that are not. Right, that's the end of the riddle. Right, so 
maybe the the idea is that the the adornments never really were there or something, or that the, the the coverings were never really there. Um, so the encounter with Torah yields various meanings, but eventually the lover sees through these apparent adornments. Ah, that's a good way to interpret it, and discovers the naked reality of revelation. The expression Gavar Shalim, complete man, derives from Targum Onkelus on Genesis 25-27. The verse itself reads, the boys grew up. Esau, is talking about Jacob and Esau, Esau became a skilled hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was Ishtam, a simple man dwelling in tents. The word Tom means simple, innocent, plain, mild, quiet, sound, wholesome, complete, perfect. Uh, husband of Torah renders Baal Torah, master of Torah, whose simple meaning is a scholar. Here the old man implies another meaning of Baal, husband. So there, that's a very different meaning of simple than what we are used to. Yes. We're, we're not used to perfect and consummate. No, right? And we're more... Like, our understanding of simple is more the way that the other simple that they mentioned in the previous page, right? Oh, you're calling him simple, right? It's just focusing on the simple, right? But he, but here, Tom is like, it's applied to Noah, it's applied to um, to Jacob, right? It's, it's this quality of being simple but perfect, you know, like kind of whole and complete and simple. What's that song? Simple kind of man. Is that the, is that the simple man? Right. Maybe in that way, right? And if you take it by that song, isn't that like Leonard Skinner or something? Yeah, I think so. Something like that, yeah. Southern rock. Southern rock, yeah. I'm not really into that stuff. Um, so, uh, so, Footnote 102, the hinting word, the word that Torah momentarily revealed. And the idea is you shouldn't change the pshat, right? So Mordecai Kaplan, the founder of Reconstructionism, might not like this very much because, well, he, I don't think he would change the text of the Torah but he would change the prayers, you know, the text of the prayers, because it doesn't, it doesn't jibe with his values. Or, but what this is saying here is that each letter, each little piece of the Torah, as you're reading it, is important. And you, if you took something out and you changed the pshat, if you change that face value level, you might miss, you might be taking out the hint, right? You, you might be like smoothing something over to make it make more sense but you would actually be removing the, the hint, right? So for example, like sometimes, a lot of times actually in the Zohar, they'll talk, they'll talk about how there's a word that has the letter hey at the end that doesn't usually have the letter hey at the end. It's not supposed to have the letter hey. So if you were to like be an editor and you were just to edit the Torah and say, oh, well, let's just make it make sense, and then you would take the hey out. But they're saying even that hey that seems superfluous is a hint and is something that you shouldn't be taking out. So that's the way that, that they have towards um, kind of the technique of delving into truth. I don't, I don't think you ever actually really fully get there, though. Uh, like they did portray it at the end as if like there's this 
finally, you know, you'll, you'll, she'll receive you and that's it. You'll be like one with her. But to me, that's like death, you know, like maybe when you finally die, you're, you're at that point where you get truth, ultimate truth, and, you, and you're, you're squinting at me. Does that mean you disagree? I'm thinking of the Buddha. Thinking of what? The Buddha. The Buddha. Mm. Yeah. What about the Buddha? Well, the Buddha became enlightened. Although in some traditions of Buddhism, right, that you, uh, the idea is that you have to reach parinirvana, right, that the Buddha reached nirvana, but then he gave up complete nirvana, parinirvana, to come back and be a bodhisattva and, and help redeem other people. But you, he couldn't actually fully embrace his enlightenment until he left his body. Okay. Then I agree. <laughs> right, so even though you know there's a certain level you can get to in this lifetime. Yeah, because the practice is an ongoing practice because you continue to fall and then get back up. Right, and sh and and the first image, you know, his actual talking about the image is she reveals, she she gives, mm -hmm. she blows you a kiss through the window, you know, <laughs> and then closes it and disappears. That to me is much more true to my experience of encountering truth you yeah. know there'll be these moments of like i get it yeah. and then it's gone and then, you fall. And then i fall <laughs> for a long time I'm wandering around looking for her and then i get it again and then i lose it <laughs> all right do we want to do another one yeah uh all right so page one so by, by the way i, I read an interesting article about very interesting article about the dalai lama <coughs> One of the things he, he um, did that uh, <laughs> he disturbed a segment of Tibetans um, was to uh, ostracize one of the deities, of <laughs> one of the Tibetan deities. And so now there's, like, wherever he travels, there's a, f a faction of people who worship this deity who come and protest. protest. <laughs> 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 you know, it's very Jewish. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, so this is from this week's Torah portion. Um, I actually only read it maybe like a month ago in my daily Zohar reading. Um, Barak, you want to start? Wait, Joseph wait, wait. dreamed a dream, page one. Okay. Rabbi Hia opened, he said, Hear my words. If there be among you a prophet of yud heh bab -Hey, in a vision I make myself known to him. In a dream I speak with him. Come and see how many rungs upon rungs the Blessed Holy One has made, all standing one atop the other, rung upon, upon rung, this above that, all absorbing suitably these on the right, those on the left, each appointed over um, another, all fittingly. If you read footnote 189 to maybe clear up that obscure language, <laughs> within the network of Sefirot, does everybody know what Sefirot are? Adam, do you know what Sefirot? Yeah, they use 
last week. Yeah, the emanations from God, which are also energy centers in us and aspects of ourselves. So within the network of spherot, throughout the entire chain of being, right? So the idea is that from God down to humans, the chain of being, um, lower rungs absorb, literally suck the flow of emanation from the higher. Right and left allude to chesed and deen, the two poles of divine being whose opposite qualities color the world. So it's talking about how divine energy is comes <coughs> down uh, for gvura. Judgment. Judgment, yes. Oh, yeah. Judgment or strength. Right, so the idea is that, that there's this constant flow from above to below, from the... From Ainsof, the divinity, to the world, um, level upon level, rung upon rung. Um, and there's also an aspect of this which is, it's like divine wisdom that's coming down. So this is also related to that Torah idea, you know, that this absolute truth coming into the world. If you read Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlav, great Hasidic master, he says that each thing in the world has wisdom in it. And the task of the human being is to uncover that wisdom that is in the thing. But wisdom, not meaning like, you know, hey, this water has to teach me about being fluid or something, you know, but wisdom in like that there's a, that there's a consciousness that's, has, that's inside this water that you can access. Um, so is it like diluted on its way down or filtered or hidden? <clears throat> It is, and the, it, it, it becomes more and more um, material and less and less spiritual. Uh, and it's harder and harder to find. It's like, remember, do you remember last week we, there, there was a, or last time there we were talking about the clothing, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like levels of clothing, right? Or shells, mm -hmm. sometimes they, they put it that way. Um, and then there's also, there's also imbalances that happen within the spherot as the energy is coming down into the earth. And those imbalances affect the ability of that. You know, imagine there's like a series of pipes that have to line up. And if the pipes aren't quite lined up correctly, yeah. the, the flow is not going to, yeah, there's going to be blockages yeah. in the flow. Yeah. So that too, yeah. Um, and now he's gonna, we're going to talk about, he's going to talk about prophecy uh, as you know, one of the things that flows from the divine to the humans. Uh, who was reading, Joe, you wanna? Come and see, all prophets of the world absorbed from a single thought facet through, through two known rungs. These rungs appear through a dim glass, as is written uh, Bar-Mara. In a vision, I made myself known to him, who is Mahara? As has been said, a mirror in which all colors appears. This is the dim glass. Right, so uh, footnote number 190. All prophets of the world absorb from a single facet. Prophecy derives from the divine flow, right? What we're talking about channeled through the spherotic pair. These are the two low spherot, Netzach and Hod, which are near the bottom. And then 191. A dim glass, and this is a very famous phrase, uh, a specularia de la nahara, uh, which means a speculum or glass, mirror, or lens that does not shine. Okay, a dark mirror. Uh, a specularia derives from Greek speculon, mirror window pane, and Latin speculum, mirror. See 
Babylonian Talmud, Yevamot 49b. Now, this is a very famous quote. All the prophets gazed through a dim glass, literally an aspaklaria that does not shine, whereas Moses, our teacher, gazed through a clear glass, literally an aspaklaria that shines. And he tells us to cross-reference uh, in Christian scriptures, 1 Corinthians 13.12, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. In the Zohar, Shekhinah is the dim glass, the speculum that does not shine on its own, but rather reflects and transmits the other spherot. Here she is the medium through which the prophet receives his spherotic vision. Right, so I take this to mean this idea of Moses um, versus the other prophets as being about ego. Right? If you the idea is that Moses, there was no there was no darkness in the way. There was no that there was nothing that was reflected from him. So he basically saw a pure vision of God, um, pure light. You know, God is like, you know, the number, you know, exactly the truth, straight into his brain. And that was because the rabbis say he was so humble and he had very little ego. Whether that's actually true from the text or not, whatever. But like the idea that, he, that his humility allowed him to do that um, is what I think is important. Um, there's a, um, I forget what Kabbalist, uh, Kabbalistic writing that says this, but it says that you know all of the other prophets, because seeing through this dark mirror means that what they were seeing was their own selves reflected back to them, um, almost like a like their consciousness, like their egos were like a sting, stained glass mirror, you know, stained glass window, and they were seeing their they were putting it in front of the mirror so that's what they were seeing so for example Ezekiel when he saw his vision of God on the chariot that was really part of something that was part of his psychology something that was inside of him um, it wasn't the pure revelation of God that like Moses had um, what is the uh, is Spiklaria is the one that does not shine how do you call Moses Espeklaria uh, Nahara, De Nahara, uh, uh, one that does shine, right? La means no, oh. or not, right? Right. Espeklaria De Nahara, Espeklaria De La Nahara. Right. So Moses saw through a, one that, that sh a, a, a mirror that shined. So he was humble and he was simple. Right, yes. And, and through that, he was able to see a clear vision. Because he, because he got his eye out of the way, his own particular eye, so that he could see the great eye um, for exactly what it was. So there's, you know, in Christianity, there's also this uh, simpleness about a child you know, mm -hmm. who really can go to heaven because of God. That makes sense. Right, that there's something to there is something to this idea of simplicity, right, and that's why the Hasidic, the Hasidim loved a lot of this material because, you know, their whole thing was you can really reach God through being a simple, simple kind of man, you know, uh, humble, simple, childlike, but but not ignorant and. Yeah. Dumb, you know, just yeah. but but simple, humble, you know, egoless. Yeah. Um, 
so uh, where were we? So a mirror in which all colors appear. This is the dim glass. Uh, Gary, you want to read, In a Dream I Speak With Him. In a Dream I Speak With Him, one-sixtieth of prophecy as has been established. It is the sixth rung from the rung of prophecy, rung of Gabriel, appointed of the dreams, as already explained. Come and see. Every seemly dream proceeds from this rung, so you cannot have a dream without false material intermingling as they have established. Consequently, some of them are true and some are false, and you cannot have a dream that does not contain both this side and that. Right, so it's talking now about dreams because that, first of all, that's how we started it off, right? Joseph dreamed a dream, right, which is from this week's Parsha, but also this idea that we don't have prophecy anymore, right? And the only kind of access that we have to prophecy in our day is our dreams. And the rabbi said that it's one sixtieth of prophecy, but the prophecy that it, that is contained in dreams comes from a much higher level on the spherot, so it has to go down through all these levels. So in going down through these levels, it can get other crud on it. You know, it can get some of that clogged stuff that you know, is. I envision it like envision it like a drain. You know, and there's like little clumps of hair that attach to it and you know and then it finally gets down to you and it's kind of a and this is this is very similar to the first text right it's like the truth is hidden it's like these little pearls of truth within the within the muck muck yeah and i mean it's what's interesting is that that you know i kind of i chose these texts for today and i've been having this this feeling lately in reading the Zohar that there's so much muck and like crud in it, like there's there's sexist stuff, there's there's you know ignorant stuff about sexuality, like like one of they say over and over in the Zohar that one of the greatest sins is masturbation, you know, and and you you should be put to death for that, and you can't go get into the world to come, and it's like. Come on, you know. But yet, there are these beautiful pearls of wisdom in the Zohar that is like will blow you away. You know, this idea of the goddess, the idea of the imminent, and that God is in all of us, and um, you know, the idea of balance, and the idea of energy centers, and the idea of egolessness, and all of these ideas are great, but they're kind of buried in this like mass of stuff. So there's a lot of that. The mucky stuff. The mucky yeah, there's a lo- there's a lot of it. There is a lot of it um, to the point where it's easy to get frustrated. You know, I, just two days ago there was a reading that said uh, a, a a man that has doesn't have has doesn't have a child uh, will die, and you know basically like that he won't he won't exist in the world to come, and you know, all of this horrible stuff just because you don't have a child. I don't agree with that. That does not <laughs> coincide with my values. And, you know, maybe you could expand it and say, well, a child can also mean you know, creative things that you make and your students that you have. You know, all these things could be like children, but that's not what it says. You know, that, that's my reconstructing it or reinterpreting it. Um, but, that, but there are 
things in there that I don't have to reconstruct or reinterpret that are gorgeous, you know, beautiful little pearls of wisdom, but they're buried in this, you know, they have stuff, which, but, but in reading this, my thought is like, they, they knew, they kind of know that, you know, that they're talking about this in terms of dreams, and they also talked about that in terms of Torah, that, you know, everything that you read, everything that, every piece of Torah that you encounter, there's going to be stuff that doesn't resonate for you, and then there are going to be little hints that you have to pursue, that, that you go down, and then they open up for you, and they get deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, should I keep reading? Sure. So, uh, let's see if anyone, any of these footnotes are... Right, so uh, footnote 194, sixth rung from that rung of prophecy, six stages span the phenomena of prophecy and dream. The Sfirot, Netzach, Hod, Yesod, and Shekhinah, and the first two archangels, Michael and Gabriel. And then um, footnote 195, you cannot have a dream without false material intermingling. Gabriel appointed over dreams stands beneath Shekhinah and thus outside the purely divine realm. Therefore, demonic forces in the vicinity can smuggle false images into, into dream material. So Brachot 55a, Rabbi Yochanan said in the name of Rabbi Shimon, son of Yochai, just as there cannot be wheat without straw, so there cannot be a dream without nonsense. And I would say, just as there cannot be wheat without straw, there cannot... There cannot be uh, uh, Zohar text without yeah. some nonsense. <laughs> or tr there cannot be a truth in the Zohar without a little bit of nonsense in there. They mentioned 160th here. And isn't there something about when we sleep of the yeah. 60 souls that we have, 59 Levi, and there's only one, two, or three that are keeping us breathing? There's a whole text about that, yeah. It's, it's several pages of the Zohar talk about uh, this number 60. Uh, and that, and that uh, there's this text about how King David would only, um, he would only sleep for 59 breaths. That once you get to the 60th, you're at this level of, of the demonic or something. Um, it, and, and that you know maybe that's some of the the lore that you had to kind of piece through but but yeah it's an interesting it's an interesting idea um, and he would never sleep for more than 60 breaths poor guy um, it was 59 times 12 seconds no. <laughs> <laughs> there's a whole discussion of it though it actually appears around it's very near where this text appears okay if you have, um, I think this is from volume, this is volume three. <coughs> if you have volume three, you could look at it at home and, and find it. It's somewhere around here. Um, so that's footnote number 195. Where were we? Um, so some material is true, some is false. You can't have a dream that does not contain both this side and that. Who was reading next? Was it you, Adam? Since a dream includes all? <coughs> Since a dream includes all, as we have said, all dreams of the world follow oral interpretation. This has been established, for it is written, as he interpreted, as he interpreted to us, so it was. Genesis 41, 13. 
Why? Because a dream contains falsehood and truth, and the word controls all. So a dream needs favorable interpretation. So I talked about this a little bit in our last class, and also in the talk that I gave uh, the day after that, is that the, the dream follows your interpretation of the dream. So, so as you interpret it, so it is the truth of it. Right? So, so, you know, it's kind of like um, self-explanatory, you know, like the way you perceive reality, that's the way reality is. The way you perceive the dream, that's the way that the dream is going to, to that's the meaning that the dream is going to have for you. Don't you remember having a dream and it being pretty disjointed and chaotic, but then you try to write it down and you make sense out of it and you reform it mm -hmm. consciously? Right, so there's, but there's an, there's an interaction between you and the material in the dream. Right. The rabbis say that a dream uninterpreted is like a, is like a, um, a gift unopened. Right. right, so you, you need to actually piece through it. And, and if you want to relate, we can also relate it back to like, I, I, keep, I don't know why I keep doing this, but back to the Zohar text, you know, and to any text that you read that, that ultimately the meaning that a text will have for you in your life, that deeper meaning is whatever you bring to it from yourself. Um, and that's where the meaning comes from. Um, but it's not just yourself, it's also other, t other, other people, right? It's not just sitting by yourself and, and studying, it's studying with others. Um, and so it is with dream interpretation, you're supposed to go to somebody else. Um, Maybe there's a guy somewhere who reads the Zohar about how masturbation is so bad for you, and he just thinks that that's the best line in the Zohar. <laughs> you know, that he, his entire value system is built around that as the pinnacle of truth. It could be. Right? <laughs> and is there anything wrong with that? Um, <laughs> as long as he doesn't try to impose that on me, impose right. that on me, right. or as long as he doesn't sexually assault somebody because of his yeah. <laughs> sexual frustration <laughs> from not yeah. masturbating. <laughs> Everybody listening there in the, in the outside world here. Um, so because yeah, there, there will be somebody that just loves that line. There might be, yeah. <laughs> or or I think they there might. There are a lot of people today who love certain lines and. Torah and other scripture that right. that don't resonate. Right. Or the line. Or you or you could take that line, right, and say, well, if you see uh, if you look at masturbation as uh, throwing away your creative energy without actually applying it towards something productive. That is kind of a negative thing. Right, it may have right? nothing it's to do. Like, it's like, you know, I could be writing my book right now, but instead I'm just doing nothing, you know? It's a midrash of masturbation. It has nothing to do with, with, masturbation. with masturbation. Right, it has to do with, <laughs> right, and that's fine, right? If it's, if it's my dream, you know, if it's my text, if I want to own this text, if it's my Torah, if it's my maiden without eyes, yes. right, nobody else's eyes are on her, then I can, I can interpret it that way. And that says a lot about me, you know, and how, how I want to come out and interpret something. So, uh, footnote number 
196. All dreams of the world follow oral interpretation. The true meaning of a dream depends on, upon its interpretation. See Brachot 55b. Rabbi Elazar said, how do we know that all dreams follow the mouth of the interpreter? Because it is said, as he interpreted to us, so it was, which is from this week's Parsha, the same text. Moses, or Joseph interprets the dreams, right? Yeah. Uh, the verse in Genesis is spoken to by Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, describing how accurately Joseph interpreted his dream and that of the chief baker. So maybe that's next week's Parsha, but... So how far did we read? Uh, we read? Because a dream contains falsehood and truth, and the word controls all, so a dream needs favorable interpretation. Rabbi Yehuda said, because every dream is of the rung below, controlled by speech, so every dream follows speech. So Gabriel, Gabriel, the rung below, is controlled by Shekhinah, who conveys the divine word and is known as speech. That's another name for Shekhinah, is speech. According to Rabbi Yehuda, human interpretation is effective because it activates divine speech, who then translates the dream into reality. All right, so there's something about speaking, speaking the truth of it, creating your truth. Uh, I guess it's my turn now. Um, he opened saying in a dream, a vision of night when deep sleep falls upon humans and slumber upon the bed, he then uncovers human ears and with a warning terrifies them. Come and see when a person climbs into bed, he should first enthrone and acknowledge the kingdom of heaven. Right? And the kingdom of heaven here, if you uh, look here, they're saying that means to recite the Shema. And that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to say the Shema when you go to sleep. Um, so, and then recite a verse of compassion as established by the companions for, oh, that one's upside down. When a human sleeps upon his bed, his soul leaves him and goes wandering above, each in its own way, ascending so, as has been said. What is written in a vision, in a dream, a vision of night, when people lie asleep in bed and the soul leaves them, as is written, in slumber upon the bed, he then uncovers human ears. Then the Blessed Holy One informs the soul through the rung, sorry, through the rung presiding over dreams, that's Gavriel again, of things destined to befall the world, or of things corresponding to the mind's imaginings, so that one will follow a path of admonishment in the world. For one is not informed while in a state of bodily vigor, as we have said. Rather, an angel informs the soul, and the soul the person, and that dream derives from above when souls leave the body and ascend each in its own way. How many rungs upon rungs in the mystery of a dream, all in the mystery of wisdom. Come and see dream one rung, vision one rung, prophecy one rung, all rungs upon rungs, one above another. Joseph dreamed a dream and told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. That's from this week's Parsha. Here we learn that a person should tell his dream only to one who loves him. Otherwise, he may prove decisive, for if that dream changes tone, he is the cause. Right, so if a dream follows its interpretation, you don't want to go to somebody who hates you <laughs> or dislikes you or doesn't love you for that to help you interpret it because they're going to interpret it maybe to your, to your harm. And I mean, this is a good lesson about going for to going to people for advice, going to people for lots of different things, right? That, and and especially dreams, because dreams are, you know, I, 
dreams are a deep part of us, you know. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a dream that you dream at night. It could be a hope or an aspiration. You don't want to go to somebody who's, who's a, who hates you when you ask about that. You want to go to somebody who loves you and supports you and who's going to interpret it for good. Yes? Do you think dream is similar to a story? Uh, so the Native Americans, um, when they ill, it's thought that the reason they're ill is there's something wrong with their story. Um, mm. And one of the ways to heal them is to get their story corrected. Um, I think that that's relevant here, yeah. Right? I think that that's, it's a very similar kind of idea. The, right? the story of your life, what you're, do, what you're doing here, who you are, has to do with Right, it's the inter it's your it's your interpretation of reality. When there's something when there's something off about your interpretation of reality, then there's something off about your reality. Right, I, the talk I gave at, uh, two weeks ago after this after our first class was about you know the idea that you can't <coughs> you can't physically change the bad things in your life through reinterpreting them. You can't do that. But what you can't and you can't change that, you can't control that. But what you can control is your own interpretation of the events and how you approach the events when they happen um, and how you contextualize them. Right? And that... The story you tell about them. Right, the story that you tell about them. So I don't know if I would agree, at least for myself, that you could completely heal somebody's sickness through changing their story, right? <laughs> but you could you could go a long way towards healing them psychologically, which might, which might help, which might help them heal their sickness, right? If the mind and the body are connected, which they are, right? <laughs> um, so should we read I, a, I had a very here? interesting experience. Um, over a period of a few months after my mother died, Jerusalem, I had a series of dreams, and uh, and they there was definitely a progressive nature to them, and there's um, uh, went went from a, a very kind of stark kind of dream to a very a very beautiful kind of dream, and uh, um, but a little over a year ago we were uh, no more than August over a year ago we were at the memorial gathering um, for Rip Dahlman in Boulder and uh, we happened to sit actually we happened to sit be between <laughs> very interesting folks um, Roger Kamenetz mm -hmm. um, um, to my left and uh, and he had he's the one who wrote the book The Jew and the Lotus and Anyway, he had his his thing now is actually interpreting dreams. Right, he wrote a book, The History of Last Night's Dream. Oh, did he? Mm -hmm. Okay. That was that came out mm, three, four years ago. I need I need to read it, especially having had the encounter with him and um, being able to share with him. Oh, you shared your dream with him about the dreams. Your dreams. Yeah, yeah. So 
it was very um, it was very supportive <laughs> and did he give you a favorable interpretation of the dreams you know actually he he, he, he what he really did was um, confirm my own interpretation <laughs> good so hopefully he didn't, he didn't really offer Hopefully it was a favorable thing, you know, it was positive, ultimately. Good. All right, so uh, I'll read a little bit more on these dreams and then maybe finish by reading one other short piece. Uh, page four, who was reading? I don't remember where we were in the cycle. I think it was your turn, Barak. Come and see Joseph, since Joseph... Come and see, since Joseph told his dream to his brothers, they caused it to be postponed, delaying it for 22 years. Right, so in this theory, the dream of Joseph, which is that he's a, he, he's a sheaf of, they're all sheaves of wheat, and they all are bowing down to his sheaf, mm -hmm. of, sheaf of wheat, that that should have just been fulfilled like right away. Right away. <laughs> and because he told it to them, it ended up that he had to go to Egypt and all this Mishigas had to happen. <laughs> but otherwise, if he didn't, hadn't have told it to them, they, it would have just happened. Right. Uh, <laughs> Rabbi Yossi said, how do we know this? Because it is written, they hated him even more. What does hated him mean? They provoked accusers against Right, and accusers means their hatred stimulated demonic forces to delay the fulfillment of the dream. What is written, he said, he said to them, listen, please, to this dream that I have dreamed, begging them to listen. Then he revealed that dream to them. If they had transformed its tone, so it would have been fulfilled. But they responded by saying, will you really reign over us? Will you <coughs> really rule us? Suddenly, they had told him the interpretation of the dream enacting a decree. That is why they hated him even more. Right, so footnote 211, if the brothers had interpreted the dream unfavorably for Joseph, it would have been fulfilled Accordingly, however, their spontaneous hateful response, will you really reign over us, guaranteed that the dream would be actualized precisely that way by Joseph's dominance. So what they're saying is it's not that they, they you know, wanted something hateful to happen. They actually, the way they interpret it is, oh, that he's going to rule over us. And so that's what had to come true uh, because that's how they interpreted the dream. Right? Not that, you know, they interpreted it as, uh, he's going to have to go to Egypt. They interpreted it as he's going to have to rule over us. So maybe if he'd gone to somebody else to interpret it, they would have said, oh, well, this means that you're going to have a lot of wheat this year, you know, or whatever. <laughs> We're all going to give you some wheat. But, you know, who knows? Right? Um, by Joseph's dominance, by verbally expressing this interpretation, they had sealed both their fate and his, realizing what they had done to themselves. They hated Joseph all the more. Um, they hated him even more. Uh, Joe, do you want to take over? Rabbi Chi and Rabbi Yossi were in the presence of Rabbi Shimon. We're in the presence of Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi <coughs> said, we have learned a dream uninterpreted is like a letter unread. 
Is this because it won't be fulfilled without his knowing or because it won't be fulfilled at all? He replied, it will be fulfilled and unknown for that dream depends upon it while being unknown and unknown as to whether it will be fulfilled or not. Okay. <laughs> Let's look. When I'm confused, I look at Danny Matt's footnotes. So that dream depends upon it. The dream depends upon its interpretation and will be fulfilled accordingly, although in this case the interpretation remains unknown. So it will be fulfilled, but it won't be known that it's fulfilled. Keep going. Uh, nothing in the world before arriving in the world is independent of a dream or by means of a herald or as it has been said every single thing before arriving in the world is heralded in heaven whence it spreads throughout the world transmitted by a herald all because it is written surely yud hey vav hey elohim does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants the prophets when prophets existed in the world, if they do not, even through prophecy, no longer prevail, the wise are preferable to prophets. And if not, it is transmitted in a dream. And if not, words manifest through birds of the sky, as has been established. I, I think it's interesting. Because, <laughs> I mean, we've, um, birds have... Birds often are messengers, or you know, in, in many traditions, and we've experienced that ourselves. And uh, it's very interesting. <laughs> they are they they are here and also considered messengers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, but what I love is this idea that that all of reality actually comes out of the realm of comes from the realm of dreams. Mm -hmm. Right. That puts a big spin on on what is real or what it means for something mm -hmm. to exist. Uh, one time I was working with, I think it was the fourth grade or sixth grade here, uh, and I, I talked about God with them. Uh, and uh, I wrote on the chalkboard, God exists. Uh, and I, first I looked at the word God and tried to define that, and it was, you know, all of this reinterpretation of the word God that they weren't used to you know, as not the man in the sky and then um, exists and then I said well let's look at that word what does it mean for something to exist to be real to and you know is Harry Potter real well I think Harry Potter has come out of the world of dreams and into reality you know there's a Harry Potter land in in Universal Studios, there's a, there's you know kids who dress up like him, and you know so so he might not actually exist as a physical human being, but but that dream that was uh, J.K. Rowling's idea for this young wizard boy became became into reality, and I would say the same thing about like basically everything, you know, except for maybe pieces of nature like like that you that you don't affect at all um, you know everything well you but they would say even that comes from this the world of dreams the world of the imagination um, 
Okay. And so then if somebody says, well, do you believe in angels? Well, I believe that angels exist in the world of the imagination. And, you know, in a, and in a way they come into this world because they co everything comes through the world of imagination into this world. But even in the sense of nature, <coughs> when you go into the forest and look at redwood, I mean, you're in your mind putting something together that you touch and you smell. And it's, Right. The best you can do is the best you can do, but how close to reality is really what you're thinking that tree is? Right. It really does come from your dreams. Right, and everything. <laughs> right, everything. Everything we experience is 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 a creation in our Absolutely. is a creation in our minds through all of these stimuli that Reacted come in. Reacted to these sensory data. We were. It's all a dream. What's that? What's that? Uh, everything that we, something is it but a dream within a dream. There's a, there's a very famous. You know the quote? No. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> While you're talking, I'll look it up. I was reading a book um, about um, Mondo's Zen, and they they describe six senses, <laughs> and the six. Well, B Buddhism has the six senses: thought, <coughs> thought, mm -hmm. thought, thought. thought of the six All that we see or seem is but a dream within a dream. I stand amid the roar of a surf-tormented shore, and I hold within my hand grains of the golden sand. How few, yet how they creep through my fingers to the deep. Ted Grown Poe. Younger Howard. Didn't know that. But it was in my head somewhere. You know. um, so, do we want to look at one more before we finish out? We can collect it and make sure I get See which one I should pick out. Let's make it kind of short. about death. Sure. sure. I like death. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's look at uh, page seven. <coughs> Who was reading last? So from uh, you can read where it says uh, he said. He said I learned from a lecture of Rav Yeva Sava. Yeva Sava on customs of the world. If a person attains a son in this world, he should sprinkle dust upon his eyes when he's buried. This is an honor for him, showing that the world is close, close to him, and that he inherits the world in his place. 
Okay, let's look at footnote 313, because it's that's a strange custom. Um, he should sprinkle dust when the father dies. His son should honor him by sprinkling dust on his father's eyes at burial, showing that the father's vision of the world and heritage have now been passed on to the next generation. So now he's gonna. Now we're gonna have um, an interpretation of the human eye as the levels of reality of the universe. So wow. this is. The human eye as the entire universe. Gary, you want to read it? For, starting with for within. Mm -hmm. For within the eye of a human being appears a vision of the world in all its revolving colors. The light in it is the vast ocean surrounding the world on all sides. Another color is dry land, encircled by water, as dry land stands in this midst of water so does this color. Another third color is in the middle. This is Jerusalem, center of the world. The fourth color of vision, no, the fourth color is vision of the whole eye, called pupil of the eye, in which a visage appears, the most glorious vision of all. This is Zion, the central point of all, in which a vision of the whole world appears. Here dwells Shekinah beauty of all, vision of all. The eye is inheritance of the world, so this one moves it, and that one acquires it and inherits it. Right, so pick it apart. There's the white of the eye, and that is kind of everything in the world that is kind of all of, all of the random places in the world. and the oceans, I guess, of the world. Then dry land, right? So then we're getting a little bit closer to the center of the world, which is dry land. Recording again. Right, right. So as dry land stands in the midst of water, so does this color. So that's a little closer to the center of, of the core of everything, but not quite. And then the third color is, the, I guess, the black in the middle. Right, and that's the pupil, yeah. Well, but did he say the fourth color is the pupil? It, well, so it's called pupil of the eye, but it's actually the vi it's the it's the it's the image itself here. So let's just so oh, okay. so let's read the actually. There's a great footnote here. He does great footnotes. So we'll read his his interpretation. No, footnote three fourteen, within the eye. This passage. On the cosmic significance of the eye derives from Derech Eretz Zuta 9 in the name of Samuel the Small. This is a, maybe a little bit clearer than the way the Zohar brings it out. This world resembles a human eyeball. The white in it, i.e. the sclera, is the ocean surrounding the whole world. The black in it, i.e. the iris, is the inhabited world. The pit in, in the black, i.e. the pupil, is Jerusalem. The, vision, the visage in the pit, i.e. the reflections of one's own face seen in the pupil of another person's eye, is the temple. Right? And the temple is like the center of reality. Okay. 
So on Jerusalem, the center of the world, see that certain place here, and here's the quote, the land of Israel sits in the center of the world, Jerusalem in the center of the land of Israel, the temple in the center of Jerusalem, the nave in the center of the temple, the ark in the center of the nave, and in front of the ark, the foundation stone from which the world was founded. Right? It's the umphalos of the world, the center of the world, center of re all reality, actually, I should say, not just the world, right? To them, the word olam meant world, but it's also universe. All right, now we get to read about death. <laughs> Whose turn was Adam? Uh, where were you? He said to him? Yeah. He said to him, well spoken, but this matter is more concealed and inhabitants of the world do not know or reflect. For at the moment that a person departs from this world, his nefesh is close to him. So there's three levels of the soul. Nefesh, which is like uh, the bodily soul, which corresponds to like your lower brain functions. Um, you know, your blood pumping through your body, uh, all of your respiration. Um, that's the nefesh. Then the ruach, which is more of the intellectual soul. And then in the neshama, which is the higher soul. So there, he's going to talk about these three aspects of a human being. So go, keep going. And before she leaves, a person's eyes see what they see, as has been established. For it is written, for no human can see me and live. Exodus 33.20. In their lifetime, they do not see. In their death, they do. The eyes open from the vision that he sees, and those standing by him should place a hand upon his eyes and close them, because of what we have learned about the mystery of customs of the world. For when the eye remains open from the vision that he sees, glorious, if he has attained a son, the son is first to place his hand upon his eyes and close them. As, as is written, Joseph will lay his hand on your eyes. For another vision, unholy, is poised to confront him, and the eye that saw now a holy, supernal vision must not gaze upon an alien vision. Furthermore, that nefesh is close to him in the house. And if the eye remains open and that other vision settles upon his eyes, whatever he looks upon will be cursed. This is dishonorable to the eye and even more so to his relatives. <clears throat> and Rabbi Kizikia uh, opened. Wait, hold on. Now, so that's, that's all we have. Right, so there's more to this whole process of what happens when you die, but I just pulled a little piece of it. Um, we maybe some other time can get together and study all that, the rest of this. Um, but so the idea is that your lower soul stays with your body. Your your nef, your neshama goes up to be in heaven. Your ruach will wander around, but your nefesh stays with your body for I. Th for the, I think it's the 11 months after you die. Um, and so uh, it's still connected to you, right? There is still some consciousness to you, according to them. Right? And at the moment of death, you see this vision of God, of like the absolute. And then they say, but if you, if you keep the eyes open past that, you're gonna see the angel of death and that's like a demon, and that's a negative vision. Um, and you also will give a curse to the people who are looking at your eyes, because somehow they'll become cursed based on looking at the angel of death. 
um, it's like the evil it's like literally the evil eye right and um, and so that's the reason that they close the eyes when somebody dies is to maintain that beautiful vision that they've had in that moment of death um, but there's also the recognition here that there's certain consciousness that's still there even after the body stops functioning um, and the you know that accords with the brain. Brain functions do continue, correct? Past mm -hmm. after you after your heart stops, mm -hmm. it's it's a while until mm -hmm. the brain shuts down and stops functioning. But not eleven months. Not eleven months. <laughs> I wonder if that has anything to do with the covering of the mirrors in the home after death. Also, not to see a vision of the angel of death. Yeah. It could be. Could be as well. So there's a lot more to this. Yeah, um, that, that reminds me of one of the kind of starkest tales. Right? I mean, I haven't read a lot of Elliot Wiesel, but, but one of his stark memories was that of his father with his eyes open, dead, you know, in this pile of bodies. Right, there's something about the eye, right? That, it, that just, I'm sure that like really stayed with him for you know all, all his life, <laughs> right? And there's something about the eye, right? They talk they, this description of the eye as almost like a it, it's not it's not even the windows to the soul; it's the windows to the entire universe, you know, through through the through a through a living eye. Um, but when the person dies, the and maybe in that moment of death they have this vision of God, but after that the eye becomes it becomes a curse, cursing thing. You know, it becomes the, it becomes something that is the opposite of of the universe and of all life. It becomes something nihilistic, right? If you look at footnote uh, number three seventeen, another vision unholy, a vision of a demonic power, or the angel of death. Um, there's a great quote that I've read a lot of times here that that um, Daniel Matt puts in his footnotes. Uh, which is a quote from the Talmud, which says, uh, the angel of death, the Satan, meaning like the accuser, the evil force in the world, uh, and the evil impulse are all one and the same. Right? That there's this recognition that death is, there's, a, there's an evilness to it. You know? there's, there's something negative. Now, I don't, I don't like to see death I, you know, I like to look at death as a part of life, and I think that our culture, you know, is horrible in its approach to death. But yet, you know, there's there's something about death that you don't want to be around too, too much. You know, you don't want it to to overtake you. Um, it's probably what we have in our tradition, where the, the, what the priests couldn't. Well, there's various things. <coughs> right, right, priests, priests couldn't come near a dead body. Yeah, and then the other thing um, is that um, you wash your hands after um, your hand labor being very bad. Yeah. Right, and you wash your hands when you sleep, too. When you wake up in the morning, yeah. you wash your hands, and you wash your eyes. Yeah. You wash the sand out of your eyes 
Mm. It's called, there's a tradition called Nagelwasser, where you, you take a little bit of water and you wash out your eyes and you wash your fingertips because the, the, cause sleep is 160th of death, according to the rabbis, back to that 160, 160th of prophecy and 160th of death. Right? And, then, and, all of, and those you know, levels of demons that exist there as well. Um, so, all right, well, uh, anybody have any closing words that they'd like to bring up? Kind of interesting, the connection is with dreams and prophecy, and then isn't there some, there's also a connection between prophecy and lunacy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I forget how that. All right, well, that's that, the, that's, that that's you know, the dross, the dross that exists there, right? There's the, that, that every dream has stuff that is, yeah, right. that is nonsensical, that is, they, they would put it in, they would, they would frame it as it, the, the demons are putting in all, as it's descending down into our world, the demons are throwing all this nonsensical stuff in there. <laughs> and so if you follow the nonsensical aspects of the dream, right, then it, it does become lunacy respect but but I, I kind of yeah. meant it in the, in the form of like you hear you know like you hear people um, crazy people let's say on the street you know like and sometimes it'll just be astonishing they'll say something totally brilliant um, who, who was it um, uh, um, Richard Kaplan I found Richard mm -hmm. Kaplan once told us a story about his man on a bus who was uh, a homeless fellow and uh, didn't really appear to be and, uh, and he was kind of talking nonsense and then suddenly he looked at looked at Richard and told him something totally profound about what he was doing with his life and it was like just like <laughs> perfectly to the point <laughs> right there's 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 a fine line between madness and, and genius madness and prophecy back to this back to, let's bring it full circle back around to the to the donkey driver right, right, right the right, right, the inane donkey driver who who had these crazy riddles that made absolutely no sense you would think you know a donkey driver isn't a isn't like a glorious profession you know it's it's a it's a real salt of the earth type thing um, and and then he's spouting all these crazy things, but mm -hmm. deep within, you know, there is this mm -hmm. there is this truth. Um, mm -hmm. So, truth and dreams and life and death and madness and genius uh, is all contained within our interpretation of reality. So, thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, I, does anybody mind if I post this? on SoundCloud. Great.